it is our heart's desire that you would in fact uh, take us, rule over us. And even now, most especially our minds, help us to think rightly about you and, and all that you call us to. Father, work this word deep within us that it might bear fruit that is glorifying to you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to 1 Peter in chapter 2. 1 Peter in chapter 2. I want to read verses 13 through 17. Peter in chapter 2, please hear the word of God. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, those of, us, those of you who are visiting with us this morning are new to us. Let me just explain the way that I find passages of Scripture for which to preach. I'm taking up this particular passage because it's the next one that I preach through books of the Scripture um, so that uh, we touch on all those things which God touches on. Uh, it's not left to me to decide what to preach on and what not. We simply take up what's, what's coming. Uh, to listen to God, to let Him set the agenda for us, and to listen to Him to see what it is that He has for us. And thus we come to this particular passage. And I think Peter comes to this particular subject uh, because of where he's been, obviously. In verse 9, for instance, of chapter 2, uh, Peter tells us this about us. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's saying, listen, this is who you now are. You need to understand that God has chosen you to be his. And in choosing you to be his, he's made you a royal priesthood, that is a priesthood by his own decree. And he's made you to be a holy nation, a people of his own possession, a people belonging to him. And then he goes on in verse 11, and he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. He's saying, listen, in one sense, your relationship to the world, because you've been chosen by God to be a holy nation and to be his own people, in one sense, your relationship to this world is that you're sojourners and exiles. You're just, in a sense, passing through. You're just moving through. Um, uh, you're, you live as if you're in exile here, as if this is not your own homeland, your own country. You take your values and your culture from, from another place in terms of how you understand life. So you're a sojourner and an exile. In that regard, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's saying, so I want you to live in such a way that will be honorable. Now, I think that causes us, at least it causes me to ask the question, all right, if I am a sojourner and an exile because I'm God's holy nation, then what is my relationship to those, especially to people who are in authority? Because you see, uh, we find ourselves in various spheres of life as Christians under the authority of others. 
In fact, sometimes, maybe very often, we find ourselves under the authority of those who aren't believers. And so I have to ask the question, then, how am I to relate to them? What's to be my relationship to those who are in authority over us, over me, especially one who isn't a believer, especially given the fact that I've been chosen by God, I belong to Him, I'm a holy nation, so do I just disregard everybody else? Do we separate ourselves out and just become our own little entity? Or what is it? Well, you'll notice as we work our way through this, uh, this, these verses that come before us, not only the ones I read, but even the ones following, that there's a key word. In verse 13, in my version it says, be subject. It might in yours say, be submissive or submit yourself to. In verse 18, servants, be subject or be submissive or to submit yourself to. In chapter 3, uh, verse 1, likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And in each one of those, especially the last two, it's clear that there, there is submission or subjection to those in authority who aren't believers. And yet, the word of Peter to us is that we need to submit in some sense to them. And the word submit or be subject to means exactly what it sounds. The word submission, the part sub means under. Mission means to be sent. So someone who is in submission is someone who is sent under someone else. Someone else's authority. Um, the little Greek words, if you put the prefix and the suffix together to come to get this word that we translate submit or to be subject to simply means to come under, be arranged under to be set under. And so when you're in submission to someone, you understand that it's, in terms of authority, you're under them. We find ourselves that way, as I said, in all kinds of situations. And to civil authorities, certainly, in our jobs, to our employers, and in certain contexts in the life of the family as well. Wives to husband, children to, to parents, we find submission taking place where God has set this in place. And what makes this even more interesting is verse 16, where Peter says, Live as people who are free. And so I want to say, cool. That means, if I'm free, I don't have to submit to anyone. But it obviously doesn't mean that to Peter. Because he's saying, listen, if you live as people who are free, then you'll submit, be subject to these human institutions. That as a slave to a master, employee to employer, could make that leap. For some of you, it may feel like slave-master works better. But in, in that context, he's saying, even to those who are unjust, I want you to be subject to them. Wives, submit to your husbands, even if your husband's an unbeliever. And so the question is, well then, in what sense are we free? If in our freedom we're still to submit. Well, Paul speaks to that pretty clearly in the book of Galatians. For instance, in Galatians and chapter 5 and verse 1, you heard this right before we began to sing. Uh, Paul writes, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Why have you been set free? So you can live in freedom. Well, what is that freedom? Well, Paul outlines that for us throughout this letter to the Galatians. For instance, in chapter 1 and verse 3, he writes this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us, and in some versions you may have to rescue us, which is a fine translation as well, to deliver us, to rescue us 
from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. He says, listen, we've been freed, we've been rescued, we've been delivered from this present evil age. What that means is that we're set free from living under the evilness of this age. That we don't have to think like this age thinks. That we don't have to have the values that this age has. That we don't need to be motivated by what motivates the people in our age who are unbelievers. We're freed from that. And thus we don't have to live in the misery that comes from not living according to the way God would have us live. He says you're freed from that. Then in verse 13 of chapter 3, Paul writes this, Christ redeemed us. Now the word redeemed means to pay a price so that you can be free. It implies that at one point in time you weren't free, but you were a slave. So to be redeemed means that a purchase price has been paid so that you can be freed. You can be set free so you can be free. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So we know we've been redeemed from the curse of the law. That is, the law brings a curse. And the curse is eternal death for those who disobey. And we've been redeemed. We've been set free from that curse. And we know we've been set free from that curse because of what Jesus did. He took the curse upon himself. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It's because of Jesus he took that. Then in chapter 3, verse 22, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before the fall came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. In other words, sin enslaves us so that the thoughts and inclinations of our hearts are sinful. So that what motivates us are things which are sinful things. Be they pride, independence, the desire to accumulate so that we can be secure, whatever those thoughts are. And so, we see that we've been set free from that. We no longer have to be in bondage to that, to that sin. Chapter 4, verse 3, Paul writes, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. That is, you were an idolater. That there were things that had been set up, that you had set up in your own mind to follow. And these things ruled you whether they were the philosophies of people, whether it was the praise of people, whether it was being in a point of prestige, or whatever that happened to be, that was ruling you and governing you. And now Paul says, you're free of that. Set free so that you can follow after God. Jesus, not surprisingly, says the same thing in John in chapter 8. In John 8, verse 31, Jesus says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, I'll give you a second. Come on, come on, come on, come on. John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus saying, Listen, the truth that you will know will set you free. And then he says in verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So we know that what we're being set free from is this slavery to sin, this bondage to sin. We need to grasp that. We do. 
Verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you, be, you will be free indeed. That is, if Jesus sets you free, if you believe the truth, you'll be set free because Jesus is the truth, meaning that he's completely reliable. He's completely dependable. You can sink entirely upon him and you'll be set free from the bondage of sin, from the curse of the sin, from its penalty and its dominating power. Because you see, the truth in Jesus is the cross. The cross is completely reliable. On the cross, Jesus did precisely what he said he would do. And he took the penalty of the sins of sinners. And so you can rely upon that. That cross is truth because Jesus is truth. You can rely upon the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is truth because Jesus is truth. And it's that truth that sets us free. The cross sets us free from this bondage to sin and the penalty of sin. And when Jesus rises from the dead, the truth there sets us free to live. So that we can live unto God. And so Jesus said, if that truth, me, what I do, sets you free, you are free really. I mean, really you're free. You're free from the curse of the law. You're free from the penalty of sin. You're free from its dominating power. You're free to live. Now the way Peter puts that, if you can run back to 1 Peter quickly, 1 Peter in chapter 2, the way Peter puts that in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. He said, what you've been freed to be is a slave to God, to be his servant. No longer to serve sin as your master, but now to serve God. That's your freedom. So he said, don't use the freedom that you have in Christ as a cover for evil. Because one of the subtle dangers of really walking in grace and living in grace, and it's a danger, it's a falsehood, but it's something that people could slip into, is this thought, well, I am already forgiven, so what does it matter how I live? And he says, don't go there. If, if you go there, you're not getting it. Because you're not to lose, use your freedom from the penalty of sin to allow you to do evil. We don't sin so that grace may abound. But you've been freed from this so that you can be a servant of God. So live that way. So then the question is, alright, if I'm a slave of God, what does that mean? Well, it means I should submit to God in everything and no one else. And there's a sense in which that's true. But Peter says, listen, if you're a slave of God, then you'll submit to every human institution. Notice how he puts it in verse 13. Be, sub be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Now the operative word there obviously is for the Lord's sake, that is on account of the Lord, because of the Lord. Why? Well, Paul explains that clearly in Romans in chapter 13. Romans in chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Same notion. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. In other words, these authorities that are over us, these human institutions, have been placed there by God. He's the one who did that. 
These aren't arbitrary. They didn't just sort of arise on their own. But if they exist, there's a human institution, and it's an authority over you, then it's been placed there, we must understand, not by the person who placed themselves, but, but instead by God. He did it, and he did it for a particular person. Keep your finger in Romans 13. Flip back to 1 Peter 2. Here's the reason. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. He said, listen, God's orderly and the order that he's established here is so that uh, evil can be suppressed and good can be rewarded. That's really the purpose here. The good can, that evil can be suppressed and the good would be encouraged. That, that those who do good will be praised and those who do evil will be corrected so that we can be protected from those who do evil. Paul goes into more detail in Romans 13. Let me read that. Verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. For those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Obviously, the context here for both Peter and Paul is not your boss, because your boss doesn't get to shoot you. Um, it's not in your marriage, because there's no sword there being born, but it's in relation to civil authorities, because if the civil authority has been given the sword to bear the sword, the church hasn't been given the authority to bear the sword, but the civil authority has been given to bear the sword, if you will, to arm itself. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. That is, if you will go against this authority, your conscience will convict you that you're going against God. For the same reason you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them taxes, to whom taxes are owed revenue, to whom revenue is owed respect, to whom respect is owed honor, to whom honor is owed. You're to be in submission to these human institutions, these civil authorities who are over you. Okay? Are you on the same page, at least so far? I want to, get to give, your, give your mind a minute to run with this. Because there's a number of dangers that we could find ourselves in if I stopped now. One danger may be to conclude that Peter and Paul were both very naive when it came to government as human institutions. I mean, didn't they know that government doesn't always protect the good and always doesn't restrict evil? Didn't they know that there can be a perversion of this of this institution by God and, and actually evil could come from a human institution, from a civil government? Didn't they know that? I, 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 think, I think they did. Peter was probably in Rome when he wrote this letter. He probably arrived in Rome about 63 AD. And Rome was not a good place at that time. In fact, Peter refers to it in chapter 5 and verse 13 like this. He says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, send you greetings, as does Mark my son. 
And so the nickname, the code word for Rome to Christians, was likely to be Babylon. And that was not a compliment. Babylon was the place where the ancient Israelites went when they left their homeland. And it was a culture completely different than their own. It was a place completely different than what God has established. There was no temple there. There was no worship of God there. And so Peter is saying, this isn't a good place where I am. This place, Rome. Prior to Peter's coming to Rome in 49 A.D., a man by the name of Nero had come to power. Actually, he wasn't a man. He was only 17 years old. He'd come to power because his stepfather had passed away and because his mother had poisoned his stepbrother so that Nero would be next in line for the throne. In the early days of his rule, things seemed to go pretty well. He got good counsel from Burrus, who was the head of the Praetorian Guard, and Seneca, the great Stoic philosopher. And he seemed to follow their counsel and advice. But increasingly, Nero became paranoid from the death threats that came to one in the position which he held. So by 59 AD, in his paranoia, he put his brother Britannicus, kind of an encyclopedic decision, um, got to remember this stuff somehow, uh, Britannicus to death, uh, then he put his mother to death, and in 62 AD he put his wife to death. Seneca, the philosopher, ended up killing himself because he knew he was next in line. He knew he would go any day. And so he ended up committing suicide more noble, he thought, than the other. And then the fire. 64 AD, Rome began to burn. The southern part of Rome began to burn, and it burned almost a week. Just as that fire was about to die out, the northern part of Rome began to burn. It burned into the next few days until about two-thirds of the city was destroyed. Who was to blame? Some. Most. Historians think Nero, probably himself, was behind the fire thinking that once it burned down he could rebuild it more glorious than it had been before. But that wasn't a very popular view to put on the streets. And so the Christians were blamed. Nobody liked them anyway. They were different than everybody else. And so the Christians were blamed. And so the persecution began in 64 AD to Nero's death where Christians were taken and they were sewn into the skins of animals and fed to the dogs. They were fodder for the gladiators. They were dipped in pitch to light the gardens. Peter himself was most likely at this time crucified upside down because he didn't think himself worthy to die in the same manner that his Lord had died. Paul, at the same time, probably in Rome, during this time was beheaded. I don't think... Paul, or Peter, was naive about the nature of civil authorities. In fact, Peter may have anticipated all that was to take place because he writes to them before the great persecution. Chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I, I don't. I don't think he was naive. In fact, he would have seen Jesus before Pilate and he knew the perversion of civil authorities in the case of the crucifixion of Jesus. He would have known about Herod Antipas who put John the Baptist to death. He would have known about the, the, the uh, devastating perversion of civil authorities there. He would have heard about Herod the Great who killed all those babies in Bethlehem at the birth of Jesus. So they wouldn't have been naive about this. They knew probably better than you and I know 
about the perversion of civil authority, and yet he still writes, submit to them. Second danger for us in our thinking is that we might think, therefore, since God has ordained or instituted all these human institutions, that it must mean that they're always right, and that we should always follow them at every turn because of their rightness. And of course, we must distinguish between that which God has ordained and that which God approves. Because God is sovereign over everything, He's God, by definition, He's sovereign over everything. Nothing can take place outside of God ordaining it, or permitting it, you might say, to occur, because He's God. If anything can happen against God that He doesn't ordain, that is stronger than God. And there isn't anything. So we understand that God is sovereign over all things. He ordains all that comes to pass. That does not mean that He approves, in a moral sense, of everything that comes to pass. He ordained the fall. He ordained that Adam and Eve sinned. That was bad. Continues to be bad. Yet, ordained by God. He ordained that wicked people, the Scripture says, came against Jesus and put him to death. The putting to death of Jesus was immoral. It was unjust. It was murder, yet ordained by God. So just because there's a human institution that's there, and a person in that human institution that God has put there, because he's sovereign, doesn't mean it's all good. Thus, we must be careful that we don't make the mistake of simply saying it's all good, therefore I must obey always. Because there are times when we needn't submit, shouldn't submit, because this is not an absolute submission. Even Peter gives us this hint in verse 17. He says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We fear God. We submit for the Lord's sake on account of Him. And we fear Him. We don't fear other human beings. We don't revere them to the point of absolute obedience. But we fear God and then we're free to honor people. So long as the honoring of people doesn't cause us to dishonor God. For instance, in Exodus, in chapter 1, the Israelites are in Egypt, enslaved. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra, the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives. If someone in civil authority ever comes to you and says, Kill your children. Don't. Alright? Why? Because that isn't honoring of God. What they're asking you to do is something that would cause you to disobey God, to go against Him. And so, if someone comes and says, kill your children, don't do that. Don't say, well, he's the president. Don't do that. In Hebrews 11, you don't need to turn there, but in Hebrews 11, there's an account of Moses. His parents saw that he was a beautiful and a strong child. And so the scripture says, they did not fear the king's, the Pharaoh's edict. They didn't fear the Pharaoh. Who did they fear? 
they feared God. He said, we can't take his life. You know the story of Shadrach and the boys in Daniel in chapter 3. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar commanded all the people through his governors to bow down and worship his gods as reflected in this, this big golden image. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you remember, said no, they weren't going to do that. And so they're thrown into this great fiery furnace and you know they were delivered from that. They didn't submit because to submit would mean to worship an idol and they knew that would dishonor God so they didn't do that. You know Daniel's situation, they came and they said he mustn't pray, the people mustn't pray to their God. So Daniel opens his windows at the appointed time and he prays so he gets thrown to the lions but the lions' mouths are closed. He wasn't to submit because to do so would go against God. Great story in the book of Acts that the apostles were preaching in the name of Jesus and thus they were arrested. So in the, they were told that they weren't allowed to preach and to teach in the name of Jesus, speak in the name of Jesus, do miracles in the name of Jesus. And so they were thrown into prison and an angel of the Lord comes and frees them all and tells them to go in the middle of the courtyard and talk about Jesus. So they're re-arrested and they humbly go and here is what is said to them, verse 27 of Acts chapter 5. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. This submission is not an absolute submission. This submission is first and foremost to God, to fear Him, and then to honor others. Now then, the question, I think, that comes to mind is, how then do we honor those who are unjust? Now I must confess, I don't believe this is Peter's question. I don't think this is Peter's point, but I'm going to pause here for a moment, because I think it's probably running through your mind. So I want to give you, not principles, certainly, but just a couple of points. What do we do? When we're called to submit to a civil authority that is unjust or that is ungodly, either by way of the institution or by way of the person who is there. First this, we need to remember that that person is there by God's sovereign decree. Secondly, we must remember that in our context, we're fortunate, I think, different than in the days of Peter, but we're fortunate to live in a country where disagreement is almost invited. It's all right. And so we have mechanisms, we have a way in order to make our voice known even against those who are in authority over us and, the, and if they're unjust or ungodly. I mean, we're, we have the freedom. In fact, it's honoring of them may not feel that way, but it really is in the world in which we live, the country in which we live, it's really honoring of them to write to them and to lay out our disagreement with them in a respectful fashion. That's honoring of them. That's honoring of God because He's the one who's instituted this kind of rule in this place at this time. It's honoring of them to debate. It's honoring of them to run against them. Now, I don't think Peter would have ever had that in his mind because I don't think anybody expected to run against Nero or to write him little notes to say, you know, can we debate this whole Christian lighting your garden thing? No. 
He wouldn't have stood for that. It wouldn't have crossed our minds to do that. But it must cross our, cross our minds. We're invited to it. We get to vote as well we should. But I must say that if we're going to take issue with those in authority over us, we must do it humbly. Not arrogantly, but humbly. And of course the way that we do that is to remember that if in fact we're right in a particular view from God's perspective, that it's only because God has worked in us. Not because we're smarter than they are, more moral than they are, more righteous than they are, but it's because God has worked in us. And we can't go arrogantly, but only humbly to them. And we must take care to make certain that these issues are issues about which God has clearly spoken. I must confess to you that I haven't got a clue what God's tax policy is. Other than it should be fair in some sense. But I don't know if they should go up or go down. I was an economist for a long time. Well, I'm doing this now, which probably means I didn't know then either. Um, which made me just like all the other economists I was working with. But, but I don't know that. But there are issues upon which God has spoken. And there may be those in authority over us to whom we need to submit who hold a very different view than the view we, we think God is. And we still need to be humble in that. And the way that we do that is to understand, and I don't like this phrase generally, but, but, by, but, but by the grace of God there go I. We need to keep remembering that if we hold God's view in a particular manner, in a particular issue, that it's because, because of God. And we shouldn't disagree with disdain but with sorrow. I must confess, it grieves me that still as a people we're debating about the lives of unborn children. I just, I just don't know why. But when those in authority over me are in favor of taking the lives of unborn children, I must confess, what tempers me, not in my view, but in my response and how I make it, is a day I'll never forget and a day I'm sure God will not let me forget. When I was standing at the doorway of Charlie and Joyce Castleton's house in the mid-1970s, probably 1975, and I said, I'm not in favor of abortion, but I could never vote to take away a woman's right to choose. There I was. I was younger then, but I think I had a better memory. I suspect I've gotten smarter, but that's not what has changed my view. I trust it was God. And so when there are people who hold a different view than mine, I can't be arrogant, can I? Because I used to hold their view, many of them. Wrongly, but still it needs to be tempered by sorrow. I, I can't believe, frankly, in my heart at least, in this country, that we have to debate what constitutes marriage. But that we are and that we do means I can't throw rocks, I must bring reason to the table. I can't bear the sword in such a fight because that's not mine to bear as the church. But I can come with reason and with passion, but not with disdain and arrogance. And so the civil discourse must be one from Christians that from a humble heart, 
and from a sorrowful heart to be respectful. And it may be, church, that a day comes when we have to take a stand that will get us in trouble with civil authorities on various issues. But we still must do this sorrow and we still must do it respectfully because we're still called to submit and honor and respect. But as I said, I don't think that's Peter's point. I, I think Peter understands all that. I think he understands the perversion of civil authority way better than we may understand it in his context. And he may see it day in and day out and may have experienced it in ways that we have never, may never, I pray, experience it. Because Peter has a bigger principle here. He has a bigger point to make. Because what he's saying to them is that I want you to obey the civil authorities for a particular reason. Notice verse 15. He says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In just the same way as in verse 12 he said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says, listen, uh, there's something more at stake here than your personal view, than your personal rights in the midst of the place in which you're living. Submit to these authorities. By and large, they'll keep you safer than not. By and large, they'll protect you against evil. By and large, they may even keep you from certain types of evil because of the laws that exist. So submit to them because there's something really at stake here that I don't want to be confused, and that's the gospel. That's the kingdom of God. That's the truth about Christ. And so over in chapter 4, notice what he says. Verse 13, he says, But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of Christ and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. He's saying, don't, don't have any taint upon you in these other areas. Because if you suffer because you've broken the law, a good law, like thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, you break one of those laws, this human institution which I've ordained will come against you. And you really haven't a leg to stand on at that point in time. So don't let any of your suffering be like that. If you're going to suffer, may it only be because you're following after God. For instance, Daniel in chapter 6. <clears throat> in verse 1. Scripture reads, It pleased Darius, king, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him <clears throat> and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaints against Daniel with regard to the kingdom you see they were jealous of them so they said now how can we get Daniel so they set out to find a complaint against him but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. That's how we're to be. 
No one is to be able to go against us and prosecute us for any unfailing, any failing in their eyes. And thus, of course, it's because we're following after God. And he says that will silence these critics because in their heart of hearts, they know they're being unjust. In their heart of hearts, they know they really haven't got you. They know that all they've gotten you on is the fact that you're faithful to your God. And so you have to live clean, honorable conduct. Submit to those authorities because that's not the point. Oh yes, God has ordained them so they can help you in various measures, but if they turn against you, don't let that worry you because you're to fear God and fear Him. Don't fear them. Fear God. He's at work. Fear God. And if you do have to stand against them, make sure it's only because to not do so would mean that you would disregard the heart of God. Make sure that the only thing they can ever get you on is being a Christian, is following after Christ and Him alone. And so the very practical application here is simply this. Are you paying your taxes fairly? Are you fulfilling your contracts? Are you honoring all those people to whom you've given your word? Are you downloading stuff on the internet that's illegal to download? Are you watching cable TV you're not paying for? Are you being honest about all the information you give when you purchase products and so forth? And warranties when you take things back? Are we being honest about all those kinds of things? Are we being faithful in that regard? Because we might think of the few, in our case, instances where there are unjust people in authority over us. But remember, there's all kinds of things we can obey that are good and solid. And we need to make sure we're about those and obeying those and not getting any trouble because of those things. We need to live honorable lives so that the gospel doesn't get confused. So that if we do suffer, it's only because we're following after God. Best example. The Christian's trump card. Jesus. John in chapter 19. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus is before Pilate. Verse 10. So Pilate said to Jesus, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Now you got to get this picture in your mind. Here's Pilate standing there in all his royal robes. Everything about him reeks ruler. And here you have Jesus. Everything by appearance reeks criminal. But one is a man. One is the creator of all that is. And the one who is a man has the audacity to look at the one who is the creator of all that is and says, don't you know that I have authority over you? I could crucify you. I could set you free. So Jesus then brings reason to the table and says... You have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And even in the midst of that situation, because he knew he was following after God, even he submitted himself to this unjust ruler. And you might say, and they killed him. And they did. But they were silenced by his resurrection. And not only that, 
they're silenced by the fact that you and I are here. They're silenced by the fact that you and I believe. Because you see, this unjust ruler was used by God to bring our salvation. And Pilate will be forever silenced for all eternity. And all those who speak foolishly against this Christ who stood before this unjust ruler will be silenced throughout all eternity. We need fear people. Only God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray for us, even as we're before this table. And Father, knowing the example of our Lord Jesus, that we would follow it, and we can follow it because he was more to us than just an example. For he's our substitute, the one who took our sin. And he's our representative even before you, that we might live. So Father, I pray that we would have humble hearts to know that you care for us, And to know that you've set up even civil authorities in such a way as ultimately to help us, and if not to help us directly, most certainly to sanctify us, to cause us to walk with you. So I pray, Father, that in the midst of the land in which we live, we would be people who live honorable lives. That no one can make a case against us other than the case that we follow after Christ. Father, enable us to work within all these institutions in a way that redeems and that shows forth Christ so that ignorance can be silenced, that those who don't know Christ on the day of visitation will glorify you. And now, Father, I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and you would set it apart in a way that enables us to fellowship with our Lord Jesus. And Father, that our faith would be increased, even as we think about Him and trust Him, because we know that He trusted in His Father who judges justly, and You delivered Him. And we can trust in You, for it's not about our rights, it's about the Gospel. It's about the going forth of all that is true about Christ. And so we pray that You would never let us hinder that. So use this meal that's before us to strengthen us and to increase our our faith even as we think upon Christ. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Father in heaven, we pray even now that you would seal to us all the benefits that are ours in Christ Jesus. Everything this meal represents and brings to us, Father, would be ours and we'd be People with increased faith, faith so much in you that we can submit even to those authorities that you've placed over us in such a way that would not bring dishonor to the gospel, but honor to the gospel. And if ever anyone has a case against us, Father, may it be that it's because we're following Christ and Christ alone. Father, may we meet people who declare your praises, proclaim your excellencies, and live in such a way that others on the day of your visitation
everything else that sinks in. Father, thank you that you showed us who you are through your Son, who died and forgave us of our sins. Father, we are so thankful for that. Father, we pray in this next time as we come to your word, Father, we want to know you. We want to see you. Father, we know it's only through your Holy Spirit that we can see any of these things. Help us, Father. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. 